You know, that's not the way I wanted to start this this morning, but <laughs> sometimes that's the way it goes. Um, but as I was saying, Jill and I just returned from a week with our son Jimmy and his wife uh, Rachel and our little youngest granddaughter, Ada Pearl, out in Seattle, had a great time. Now, as you know, uh, I, as a proud grandfather, I have really, really restrained myself from all those pictures and videos, you know, popping up in sermons, okay? But I thought today, since I've been such a good boy for <laughs> a year at least, I, you know, and I have about 200 pictures of Ada on my iPhone, I have about 30 videos, but I've reduced it all down today to just four pictures. So... Here's Ada Pearl, just an update report. She's going to be three in about two weeks. So here, uh, here, here's Ada with uh, her little cat named Pepper. And then I have another picture of Ada, I think, coming up here. Now, this is Ada at the Disney store. And I don't know if you can see those Minnie Mouse ears she has on. And then uh, we have Ada at a not-so-good moment, I guess. And then uh, Ada getting ready to go to uh, preschool. And that was taken just before we left. So my heart was really tugging away at me at that time. Uh, now you can, you know, if you uh, want copies of these pictures, you know, just see me after the service. I can take care of that for you. Um, but we had a wonderful time out there, as you can see, and really got to build that relationship. So, um, but, you know, when I was coming back on the plane, after all these hours with Ada, I was struck again with the innocence and the imagination and the excitement that fills the life of children. I can't tell you, uh, you know, uh, uh, the number of times we were out there, we would say to Ada, hey, want to go for a walk or want to go get the Christmas tree, want to go up to Larson's for a donut, that was a great Scandinavian bakery out there within walking distance, uh, want to, uh, you know, read a story, make Christmas cookies. Every time we'd say something like that, she would just go crazy. She would start bouncing up and down, jumping with energy and excitement and imagination. And, you know, and it's just, that's, it was a reminder to me that children are filled with excitement and wonder, and it, it's the purity of their innocence and their imagination. That's, what a wonderful thing to behold in our kids. It's wonderful. But then as we flew back from Chicago, I was not only thinking about that, but I was also thinking about this totally contrasted focus that we have during Advent Conspiracy this year. You know, as a church family, I, you know, we're, we're focusing upon a world that has such a dark side to it that it can take little children in all their innocence and their purity, it can take them and sell them into things like slavery, sex slavery, use their bodies, treat them as non-persons. And the struggle I found within myself coming back on that airplane was, I found myself not wanting to even think about this stuff that we're focusing on. And I have to admit that to you as your pastor. I found it so unpleasant and so disturbing that I didn't want to think about it at all. Uh, 
I also had this accompanying thought that every woman that is trapped in this whole horrible sex industry that we've been hearing the statistics about and hearing some stories about was once an innocent little girl just like Ada. There was a part of me that wanted to just get all my kids and my grandkids, circle them up, and move to some place in this world as far away from all this kind of horrible, horrible stuff as we could possibly get. And I, I mean, I was really struggling with that. And even struggling with wanting to come back and sit up here and talk about this whole ugly kind of scar and wound that we de deal with in our world. But then, you know, I had to say, my, my thoughts began to turn and they began to come back around to, okay, well, what is this whole Christmas thing about anyway? What is the meaning of Advent? And the meaning of Advent, we keep coming back to it, is this, that Jesus did the very reverse. He didn't run away from the dark places of our world. He didn't run away from the danger of our world. Jesus did the opposite of that. He came right into the darkest places of our world. He stepped into the danger of our world. And we as his church, we have been called to take his love and his message and his hope and his care and his compassion. We've been called to do the very same thing, to take his name and his message of salvation and his message of hope. We've been called to take that into the dark and dangerous places of this world. So, you know, I think that longing that I had in my heart on the airplane to escape all this, I think that was my longing for Eden. You know, we lost Eden, didn't we? And we're outside of Eden right now. God has promised to restore it someday. But, in, but now we're in this in-between dangerous dark zone where people's lives are just being destroyed. And we're the church of Jesus Christ. We are that light that city set on a hill that shines out the light in the midst of the darkness. That's the message of Christmas. And I'll tell you what, I found myself, even though we live in a world of harsh realities, I found myself on that plane being thankful to God that there is a message like the message of Jesus Christ. Without that message, without that light, without that hope, I'll tell you what, we are all sunk. There is no hope in this world without Jesus Christ. And so that's where I'm at this morning. I come, back, I come back as your pastor, ready to be recommitted to this, praying with all my heart for my, for my grandchildren, and you're praying for your children and your grandchildren in this dangerous world, doing everything we can to protect them and nurture them and keep them and protect, keep them safe, but realizing that there are many out there that, that need the hope that only you and I can give them. So may God fill our hearts. Well, today the scripture that we're looking at uh, is from Luke chapter 7 and 8. Luke was an early biographer of Jesus Christ. And Luke describes in these two chapters the hope that Jesus Christ brings into the lives of shattered people. And in this, uh, in fact, it's one of the longest sections in the entire gospel of Luke. His focus is specifically upon Jesus' ministry to women. And I thought that was extremely appropriate because when we're talking about this whole human trafficking nightmare, 
we're talking mainly about women being trapped and, and drawn into this whole enslavement thing. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't boys that are brought into this too, because there are. But it seems, by and large, this is predominantly something that women are being trafficked. They're, they're the ones who are being trafficked and whose lives are just being snuffed out as though they were a piece of property. Well, I think this is an appropriate passage for us to take a look at this morning. So what I want to do is I want to begin in the seventh chapter with verse number 36. You can watch on the screen or follow along in your Bible. I want to read this passage. Uh, Jesus was invited to a dinner. That's where we begin in verse 36. It says, one of the Pharisees, that's, they were very strict religious leaders, very strict religious leaders, asked Jesus to come to his home for a meal. So Jesus accepted the invitation. He sat down to eat. And then a certain immoral woman, that is a prostitute, heard that he was there and brought a beautiful jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet. Now, you have to understand that when they ate meals in those days, they didn't sit at a table on chairs like we do. What they did was they, uh, they had a small table just maybe a f- six inches off the ground with all the food on it at the center, and then they would all lay down on their stomachs, prop themselves up on an elbow, and eat with the other hand with their feet going out away from the table. And so the picture is this woman somehow heard that Jesus was at this meal. Evidently, this is a woman who wanted out. She wanted to escape. She wanted a new life. And she'd heard about Jesus. And so she came to this dinner. How she got in there, we don't know. Uh, But this is what it says. She knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. She wanted out. And her tears fell on his feet. And she wiped them off with her hair. Now in those days, for a woman in public, in that society, to loosen her hair was considered to be just, man, that was just something totally unacceptable. And it, it fit who she was. Okay? But that's what she did here. She took her hair and she began to wipe his feet off. And then she kept kissing his feet while she put that expensive perfume on his feet. Now, talk about an awkward moment. (laughs) That would have been a really awkward moment right there. And the Pharisee's response is verse 39. When the Pharisee, who was the host, and we're going to see that his name was Simon, he saw, when he saw what was happening and who this woman was, he said to himself, he thought to himself, this proves that Jesus is no prophet. If God had really sent him, He would know what kind of a woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Now, that may very well be the motive that Simon had in inviting Jesus to this dinner in the first place. He was just sort of testing Jesus, trying to figure out who is this guy. Is he really all he's cracked up to be? Well, right now, it didn't look like he was. But Jesus is about to to prove to Simon that he really is indeed a prophet, and more than that, because here's what it says in verse number 40. It says, then Jesus spoke up, and he answered Simon's thoughts. He knew the unspoken thoughts that were in Simon's heart as he saw what was going on. And so Jesus says this, Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to to say to you. All right, teacher, Simon replied, go ahead. And then Jesus told him this story. 
A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one of them and 50 pieces of silver to the other. Now, 500 pieces of silver was an astronomical amount of money. That was a year and a half's worth wages that this one guy was in debt to his lender. The other guy, 50 pieces of silver, that was one day's wages. So that was a lot of money in either situation. But the one, an astronomical amount. But neither of the men could repay the debt. So the lender kindly forgave them both, canceled out their debts entirely. And then Jesus asked this question to Simon. Simon, who do you suppose loved that lender the most after, after that act of forgiveness? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, that's right. And then he turned to the woman and he said this to Simon. And I think these are important words. He said, Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. Look at her, Simon. And I think Jesus was saying to Simon, Simon, you need a new way of seeing. I want you to really look at this woman here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss of greeting, but she has kissed my feet again and again from the, first, from the time I came in. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little bit of love. And then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who does this man think that he is going around forgiving sins? So Jesus proved himself there at the table that day not only to be a prophet, but to be far more than a prophet. He proved the message of Christmas, which is what? His name is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Only God has the right and the power to forgive sins. And he forgave this woman all her sins, wiped the slate clean, completely clean. She was filled with gratitude. But what were the hearts of Simon and the other people at that table filled with that day? Not gratitude, but anger and judgment and rejection. And then Jesus said to this woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And the word Jesus would have used there for peace is that Hebrew word, shalom. And a good translation of that Hebrew word shalom is flourish. And so Jesus is saying to this woman, no matter what her past had been, he's saying, I have forgiven you. I want to give you a brand new life. I want you to go out now and flourish. Have a life that just blossoms and flourishes and become the person that God created you to be. And that's the beauty and the power of Jesus Christ. Now, this woman, as, we, as the text says, she was the one who, because she was forgiven so much, she had a heart that was just so filled with gratitude. But you know, there's another point that Jesus is making in this parable. 
And it, I think it goes down to answering this question. Who was really the greatest sinner at the table that day? Was it the woman in her prostitution? Or was it Simon the religious leader in his self-righteousness? Lifting himself up and making her, and making him her judge. Now here's one thing the Lord teaches us. And this is taught all through the scripture. There is one sin that is the worst of all sins. It is the root from which all other sins come. It's the first sin. It's the original sin. It's the sin that Adam and Eve first committed, the very first sin that was ever committed. It's the sin of self-will instead of God's will. I want to do what I want to do. I want to live my life. I want to run my life instead of God being in the picture whatsoever. And that was the sin of Adam and Eve. Self-will asserted over God's will. And the religious form that this sin of self-will always takes, the religious form of this sin is what we call self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is when I elevate myself above any other human being on the planet and make myself their judge and begin to condemn and look down and, and, and uh, diss them and disregard them. And that's what Simon was doing that day at the dinner table. He was elevating himself and making her the judge of this woman. You know what Jesus, uh, you know, the strongest words that Jesus has recorded in the New Testament by far are his words directed toward these religious leaders, many of whom thrived in self-righteousness. And this is what he said to them one time in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27. He said, you guys, you religious leaders, you're just like whitewashed sepulchers. A sepulcher is a gravestone. It's a tomb. You're clean on the outside. You spend all your time trying to make yourself look clean and shiny and religious and godly on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You're full of decaying, rotting bones. And that's what Jesus thinks about self-righteousness. It is the root of all. It is the worst of all sins. It meant, what it meant was that Simon was a lot farther away from God than this woman was. He didn't see that his sin was even larger than her sin. And that's why he was so harsh with this woman. Instead of having any ability to be compassionate, he had no ability to be compassionate because he was blinded by his self-righteousness. And as a Christian... This is the sin that you and I must most guard our hearts against because our ability to love others and to serve others comes from one thing, and that is from the humility of knowing that we have been forgiven of our sins. The moment we forget that we are sinners who have been forgiven by the gift and grace of a God of mercy, the moment you and I forget that, or even begin to forget that, we begin to lose our capacity to be compassionate, to care, to love, to be, the, to be on the mission that Jesus called us to be on in our world. My ability to serve and love others will always be tied to my gratitude for having been forgiven myself by the mercy of God. And then... Luke chapter 8, 
picks right up off of the, uh, 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 coming right after the end of chapter 7. This is, what Luke does is he connects the next chapter to what he has just told us about in the story of this woman. I want to read the first three verses of chapter 8. It says this, Not long afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby cities and villages to announce the good news concerning the kingdom of God. He took with him his 12 disciples, along with some women he had healed and from whom he had cast out evil spirits. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many other women who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. Now, there's, there's a lot of information that's packed in here for you and I. Uh, Jesus, right after this incident, a short time after, he begins this ministry tour, as the scripture said, he's going to all the different villages sharing the gospel, the power he has to, to set people free. He takes with him his 12 disciples, the apostles. But here's something we don't often realize, that for a good part of Jesus' three years on earth, his ministry, there was not only 12 men that were traveling with him, the apostles, but he also had a team of women who were traveling with him as well. Uh, there's a hint here. It's not told specifically, but there is a hint that maybe this former prostitute whom he had freed and, and poured out grace upon, she also became part of this ministry team of ladies that were traveling along with the disciples on their ministry tour. Um, we, all, we, know that, we know the names of three of the ladies. They're given to us. One was Joanna, Susanna, and among them was Mary Magdalene. And probably Mary Magdalene is the name that rings a bell with most of us because it says here that Mary's life had been in extreme desperation. Jesus had set her free by casting seven demonic spirits out of her life. Now, we're not given the details of what damage these demonic spirits did when they controlled her life. We're not even told what, that, what, what all that was. But we get the picture of this, that she was, about as, she was in as much darkness and about as hopeless as any human being could ever possibly be. That's what we're learning about Mary Magdalene. But Jesus Christ was even able to come to a lady like Mary with the past that she had and the issues in her life. He was able to come by his love and his grace and his power and to set her free, and to give her a new life. And you know what? That's the same power that Jesus Christ has in the world today. Very same power. Not a, not a bit less than that. And isn't that a motivation for you and I to just get this name of Jesus out into the four corners of our world, into every dark place in this planet, so people, can, so people just like Mary can experience this grace and be set free? Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul said that the gospel is the power of God to salvation to every person who believes. Well, there's something else in this passage that takes it even further. You know, in that day, for Jesus to include women in his traveling team of disciples, that would have been completely unheard of. And by doing this, Jesus opened himself up to tremendous rumors and criticisms. 
But Jesus had a deeper, something deeper in his heart than, than his reputation, didn't he? What Jesus was doing was he was breaking ground for the wholeness and the flourishing of all people, including the important place and role of women in society. Giving women a place of influence and leadership. Jesus was breaking open that ground in a society that had shut that down completely. Uh, the writers of the New Testament, led by the Holy Spirit, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, against all of the cultural uh, power of their day, they highlight the prominence and the leadership of women. That was groundbreaking. And these women that are referred to in our, the text we just read, they remained with Christ and were present all the way through this Galilean ministry, all the way up with Jesus, all the way to the cross. Uh, and, and the amazing thing is, Luke chapter 23, verse 49, talks about the women who had been with Jesus on his Galilean tour. You can look it up. They stood at a distance when Jesus was hung upon that cross. Where did the 12 disciples go? The 12 apostles at that time. Where were they? They were hiding. <laughs> they split the scene. They left. But the, the women, they were at the cross. Um, chapter 24 goes on to tell us that, in fact, it even names a lot of the same, the same circle of ladies. They were very faithful. They were very... They, and... And, and they're the ones who took the body off the cross, took it to the tomb. And then they're the ones who prepared the spices, that same circle, and they came to the tomb to anoint and, you know, the body of Jesus after his death. They're the ones who on resurrection morning, they came early to the tomb before sunlight. And uh, they were the first ones to realize that Jesus was raised from the dead. In fact, the one who really got, was given that privilege was Mary Magdalene. Uh, in John chapter 20, verse 11. I want you to think about this for a second now. Let's, let's see this picture. When Jesus first met Mary Magdalene, her life was in shambles. It was completely hopeless. No one, no one would have given her life any possible hope. But she came to Christ, and through Christ's grace and love and forgiveness, her life began to flourish. And so here we come down to the very resurrection morning, the greatest moment in the history of the church. And who is it that Jesus gives the high honor and privilege of being the first human being to witness his resurrection? It wasn't the Apostle Peter. It was not the Apostle John. It was Mary Magdalene, this woman whose life had been so set free. And that, to me, that is a tremendous testimony of the love and the grace and the power and the possibilities that, there is, that lie in Jesus Christ for every one of us. He wants our lives to flourish, to rescue us and to recover us and to bring us back to the life that he intended us to live. You know, that privilege was given to a woman in a society that did not even allow women, their, witness, the witness, women were, their, their testimony was not even considered valid in a court of law. Women would never be asked to, to give testimony in a court of law in that society. But Jesus is giving this privilege and this honor uh, by his grace. And then, actually, and then verse number three tells us something else about 
these women, that from their gratitude, they gave to support the ministry of Jesus Christ as they went from village to village. And some of these women had wealth. Joanna was the uh, wife of Chusa, one of the uh, uh, office managers in, this, in the uh, court of Herod. So the ministry of Christ would not have been able to take place without the involvement of, of the ladies in, in serving and upholding him. And they did this because of one thing. They did it because of gratitude. The gratitude that Christ had, for what he had done in their lives. And I think there's the message for us in Advent Conspiracy because we're doing the same thing. Uh, it's Advent Conspiracy, serving Christ, whether it's at Christmas time or any other time, what it's all about is it's all about being grateful for what God has done in our lives. And we just want to give generously as to, so that the same thing can happen in the lives of other people. And so during this whole focus on Advent, as you know, we have been looking at the ministry of, of this whole human trafficking issue. We've been looking at it from a local lens right here in, in Chicago in the Dream Center. We're linking up with them to try to reach out and bring rescue and grace and love to, to many that this ministry can touch. Last week, you heard from Kesata, uh, international ministry. We're focusing with them, teaming up with them for Benin in West Africa to try to, to secure the rescue through their ministry of many, many others who are trapped in this whole industry. Uh, at the end, uh, we have two weeks. We have today to give. We have next week to give. At the end of that time, whatever is given in the Advent conspiracy envelopes that are inside the bulletins, all of that will be taken and just split down the middle. Part of it will go, half of it will go to the Dream Center, half of it will go to Kesata. And that's our way this year of just teaming up with these ministries and trying to, to reach out and make a difference in the lives of many, many people who are caught up in this whole thing. So, so far uh, in our Advent Conspiracy offerings this year, $3,494 have been given toward this rescue effort. And we have today and next Sunday to continue giving. So I want to thank the congregation here. I want to thank you for your generosity. I believe every single dollar that is given is going towards salvaging a person's life. Uh, we may not meet any of these people here in this world, but I believe we will meet them in the kingdom. We'll meet them in heaven someday. And we'll be able to rejoice with them <clears throat> in what the grace of God did in their lives. So this morning, we're going to wrap this up. Um, and I want to wrap it up by saying that this uh, same gift of Christ is here this morning uh, that came into Mary Magdalene's life, any of the other lives that we've been talking about. That same gift is here today for any person to reach out and take hold of Christ. He can come in, change our lives, cause us to flourish, by his power and grace. So I want to encourage you, if you're here today, searching, reach out, give your life to Christ. He'll receive you right where you are if you place your faith in him. Christ followers, let's just be all the more dedicated than ever before to share this love and this message of Christ with, with our world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful today that you love us. We're thankful, Lord, that you care for us. 
that you came into this world, Lord, to, to reach down into our lives, to redeem us. And Father, we give you thanks for that. We give you praise for that. And Lord, I pray today that you will uh, continue to speak to our hearts in this room. Lord, help us, Lord. We know you want to repeat that story uh, in Mary Magdalene's life. You want to repeat that story in the lives of people today. Heavenly Father, our giving is strategic. But not only our giving, our own witness, Lord, in our world to the people that you've placed us among. Lord, help us, Lord, to be witnesses. Help your light to shine from us, Lord. And Father, um, in these closing moments of this service, I pray that your spirit will be very, very present here today. And Lord, uh, that you will just move upon our hearts and accomplish what you've brought us here to do. And we give you praise for these things. We pray in Jesus' precious, wonderful name. Amen.